In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, last week we ended with a uh, pretty intense conversation. <laughs> yes, yes, so we'll, we, we will uh, dig a little bit further into uh, where we left off about um, uh, 2 John verse uh, 15 in chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we talk about that, what it means uh, when he says do not love the world, I wanted to make sure uh, everybody uh, gets an opportunity to ask any questions, if there's anything pressing on your mind. Alright. So, I, I, I wanted to just clarify something. Uh, after we finished our conversation, I stayed uh, behind with a couple of you, and we talked about uh, example uh, we mentioned about um, even uh, the attachment of even uh, our family members and attachment to the, even the good things in in our life, the good things in the world. And uh, even though there's nothing sinful in those things, like family members, uh, those are all good things. But we should, still shouldn't be attached to them. And a lot of you shared some good things. Uh, I just wanted to kind of sum that up, uh, not to revisit the whole topic once again, but to kind of summarize it in a very simple way, um, just to keep in mind that whatever you live for, whatever you're attached to is what you're going to dedicate yourself to. And so even if that is something good, not necessarily something bad, if it is other than God, then it becomes an idol. Okay, so there are some people who live for their family, some people who live for their job, some people live for a sport. What happens when what you're living for is taken away from you? When it's gone, because we said everything in this world is fleeting, even we ourselves are fleeting. Then your whole world falls apart. When what you're living for is gone, your world just crashes and burns right there. And there's a lot of people that I've come across uh, with, especially now having been a priest for the last few months, and I'm coming across with fam- you know, families that are struggling with uh, losses of loved ones. And uh, whenever they say things like, I have nothing to live for anymore. And I have no reason to go on. You know, when, when I hear things like that after it's been years and years of dealing with, you know, tragic events, even though it's understandable we take the time to mourn and process, there's still a big problem whenever we can't move on past something like that. When you hear phrases like that, it's very, very concerning. So that's why I really wanted to make it clear that we detach, not just from the bad, but from all that is not God. We detach, not just from the bad, but from all that is not God. Okay? And, of course, we value family, we value our, our, our work, we value all the beautiful things in the world. But we don't live for them. Does that make sense? We're not attached to them. Alright. Any comments, questions on that? Alright, so, we read in... First John um, two fifteen. 
do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, all the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay, so before we can move on, that, that first phrase requires a bit of attention. Do not love the world. And uh, we started to talk about it, but we didn't really put it all together. So, we have to get an accurate definition of two words here. Get an, get an accurate definition of two words. First is love. Second is <coughs> world. What do you mean by do not love the world? What do you mean by love? And, and what is it when you say the world? Like, what is it that I do not love? Okay, so there's a lot to figure out here. What is it that I do not love and what do you, what, what do you mean by do not love? Okay, so what does the word love mean here? Attached. Attached. Okay, do not be attached to it. <coughs> Let's take this a step deeper. If you think of uh, the word love in our language, in, in English, there are a couple of different distinctions that we can make when we want to use a word or a word like it. We can say, do not, I do not love this, or you can say, I do not like this, right? You can say, I love you, or I like you, right? So it's like, <laughs> there's a big difference whenever you're dating someone and you're like, I like you, I like you too, I like you, I like you too, then one day it's like, I love you, and it's like, whoa, right? <laughs> it takes another level. Um, yeah, in Arabic, it's even more tragic because it's not just these two words, but it's one word. So English is, is limited to two words. Arabic is even worse because, like, I can't say, I like this chair. I'd say, Bahib al kursi, like, I like the chair, which still doesn't really give you an accurate translation. So, I mean, I can say, like, I prefer the chair, or Afadal al kursi, whatever, but it doesn't translate right. Okay? So, there's an even bigger issue in the Arabic language. Alright? When you look at the Greek text, there really isn't this issue. Why? There's like three or four different words for love. Exactly. So, there are four different words that are commonly used. Okay? There's agapi, there's philia, there's estorge, and there's eros. Okay? Uh, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful book called The Four Loves, and uh, he talks about these words. Okay, which one of these four words is used here? When you speak Greek. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Agabi. Like it's not Agabi. 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 I don't think it's arrows. Okay, you don't think it's arrows? So we're not the Arabian arrows based on Jack and Joe? Which 
<laughs> Alright, how about I define the four for you and then we take, a, we take a pick, okay? Well, you guys actually might already know Agabi. That's the most common one that we hear in the church. What's Agabi? It's like the ultimate love. The ultimate love, exactly. Yeah. It is divine love. It is the, the love of unselfish sacrifice. It is the love where you give your complete self unreservedly to the object of your love and it is independent of the object. It is unconditional, it is unlimited. It is, it is exactly what God has for humanity. That's Arabi. Alright? It is to give yourself to that something with your whole heart. Alright? That's Arabi. Now, Philia. Philadelphia, come Brotherly on. Brotherly love. Hmm? Brotherly love. Brotherly love, good. Brotherly love. It's more so uh, like a friendship. It's uh, a love that does sacrifice and uh, a love that is unselfish. But there is more of a relationship. We kind of give and take in that sort of love. Okay? We kind of give and take. That's why Philadelphia is called City of Brotherly Love. Alright. Estorge is a little more uncommon. It is the maternal or like paternal type of love. It's a love that a father or mother would have for their child. It is a love that is connected through kinship or family. Okay, so it is feeling that sort of bond based on the family relationship based on the, the relative that you share something in common with. Okay? And the final of those four is Eros. And I think almost everyone knows this. What's Eros type of love? Is it love of the flesh? Almost. See, this is a, there's, there's, there's a little misconception that is limited <coughs> to that. Okay? So Eros might be more easily recognized when you think of the word erotic. Okay? Eros or erotic. It's more so like a romantic or intimate type of love. It can be physical. It can be um, something that is sexual, but not necessarily. Okay? But it is intimate, and you'll recognize it more so in, in the sense of defining a relationship between a husband and a wife. That's the type of love that they would share. But it can be something good or bad. Because you could have um, sinful erotic love, something where it's just all lusts and pleasures, but you could have that sort of passion, that fired up intimacy, and that physical connection that is rooted in unselfishness and expressed through holy matrimony. Okay? Alright, so now. This one helped. <laughs> What, what, what is he saying not to do? Which one of these four? Probably Good. You're right. So he says, do not love the world in the sense of, do not agapi. Okay? So, when I first read this, I was like, that makes perfect sense. You know? Agapi is that sort of love where you just give yourself completely to the world, undeservedly, <coughs> without 
any conditions, without any limitations, you just give yourself you with your whole life. Yeah. Right? So I said, that makes sense. I like that. Move on from there. But then, I looked at other places where the scripture tells us to relate to the world. And I found in James 4.4, 4, he says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Okay? What is this world what is this word friendship really? Start there. The second one we said? Stargate. Right? So he says Philia with the world or friendship with the world is enmity. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Like I, I get <laughs> I get the first one where you can't where you shouldn't give your whole self unreservedly to the world and just be committed. But you can't even like have an association and a sort of friendship. That's where I kind of like took that my understanding of it to a different level. And it seems what the scriptures are telling us when it comes to our relationship with the world that all ties, even sort of a relationship that is innocent, like a friendship, an innocent sort of love is unacceptable. Right? That, that's why he even says friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's, he's not saying friendship with the world is going to make it tough to love God. <laughs> he doesn't say friendship with the world is uh, going to be a weight on your shoulders. No, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Okay, so that kind of puts this word in a better context. Any questions about that? Not yet. Okay, alright, so now let's define the word world. <coughs> so he says, do not love the world, do not even befriend the world. Money, material stuff. Huh? Money, material things, possessions. Okay. Anything perishable? Anything perishable. Good. Those are all good answers. Anything else you guys want to add? Anything that's <coughs> not morally accepted by God in any way. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> I think you guys totally nailed it right there. I'm going to just share with you something that I came across. Uh, because this word, world, is going to recur again in the, the first epistle of St. John. And it was a word that was used repeatedly throughout his gospel account as well. So it's important for us to really understand what he means when he says the word world. Or else we're going to stumble when we come across it a second time or a third time. Okay, so just to give you a couple of references... Um, In, in the gospel account, he says, He was of the world, and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. And he says again, The world, the world hated God and Christ. That's in John 7, 7, and 15, 18 to 19. Now, in his epistle, he says this a little bit later. He says, The world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And here he says, do not love the world, nor the things which are in the world. So, 
it seems that he has a very pessimistic connotation to the world. It's uh, it's a negative sort of association with it. <coughs> okay. Now we have to clarify a couple of things because there's more to it than just saying the world is bad. The world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Um, and, and thinking that the, there's always a negative connotation to it. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'll just share something, just a couple of words here from uh, this is Archimedes Kiprian Kern. So he says, Thus, by examining patristic writings, it becomes quite clear that the world represents complete hostility toward God and the powers of good that are directed toward man. The whole world lies in sin, it's completely infected and poisoned by sin. But an easy and quick exit is not possible because we live in the world. Yet sin is only the shell of the world. He says sin is only the shell of the world. Evil does not exist in the essence of, of or, or, or nature of the world. Evil does not exist in the essence or the nature of the world. Merely, uh, rather, exists merely in what surrounds it and envelops it. The world is not in and of itself evil, but lies in evil. <coughs> so the same word the ascetic says, Because of our passions, we were given the commandment not to love the world, nor that which is in the world. This does not mean that we should thoughtlessly hate God's creation, but rather cut ourselves off from worldly passions. So creation as such, or creation in and of itself, is not at fault. There's a literary profusion of stories about ascetics who loved God's creation, animals, and, and nature. Orthodox ascetics embrace God's Creation with joy, love, and respect. So creation, even if fallen, is of divine origin. It's God's creation. So, if the world itself is evil, this would mean that it was created evil. But evil, as taught by the fathers, is not the natural essence of creation, but it's foolish and sinful usage. Okay? So... I know that was, I was a mouthful, but this is the best. Yeah, that was the best understanding I could find from. It's not evil in and of itself, but it is more so uh, the the way it has been corrupted and misused by the presence of sin. Okay, and so we do appreciate what is in the world. We do love creation because we see the beauty of God in it. There's a lot of saints, ascetics, who loved animals and loved all of nature. So the sin is not to love creation, but it is the attachment to the creation because creation itself is not evil. What's evil is its misuse. Okay? Does that make sense? <coughs> right, any comments, questions on that? Anything you guys want to add? When God created the world, He said, you know, you saw this and He created, this is good, this is good, this is good. Everything was good. It's just because of 
our own sins and our own lusts and pleasures that evil entered into the world through all that. Yeah. Um, <coughs> makes sense. And so, there's actually wisdom in seeing the good in it. Because what a lot of the fathers teach us is that the blessing comes in seeing the traces of God in nature. We see that the traces of God even in animals. Like somebody who loves pets, loves dogs, can learn from animals. That's somebody that glorifies God by having that spiritual perspective. By looking at nature with that sort of spiritual lens. He doesn't see it as fallen, but he sees God as its creator. And that although it has fallen, it is of divine origin. And there's a lot of saints who uh, have incredible stories with, with animals and nature. Actually, just uh, a couple of days ago, we commemorated um, uh, Saint Parsuma the Naked. And so he had the story with the snake. Yeah. Right? And so all of creation was intended to be under our command, under our authority. Right? And so the beauty of it was that it was subjected to us. But obviously that's not the case now. But hopefully we reach the state where we're like Daniel and the lions then, and the lions just submit to our authority. <laughs> Any other comments? Alright, so St. Severus of Antioch says when he, when he wants to define the world that it means the lusts and desires of the world which are ruled by the devil. Okay, and that's exactly what we concluded. We, we do not get attached to the world by misusing the, the pleasures in the world, by being attached to the lusts and all the things that have turned away its purpose from God to satisfying our own selfishness. Alright. Now, just a little bit later, and after that verse, he says, For all that is in the world, this is in verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I remember Jack pointed out last week, this basically encompasses everything. This encompasses all that can be sinful in the world falls under these three. Okay? Any sort of lust or pleasure pretty much falls under these three things. Okay, So it does warrant a little bit more attention. What are these three things exactly and what do they represent? Okay. So, Bishop Hilary of Arles says, The lust of the flesh is what pertains to our physical appetites, whereas the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are what pertain to the vices of the soul, <coughs> such as excessive self-love, which does not come from the Father, but from the devil. So you see here in the three, there are the sinful pleasures in regards to the physical senses and the spiritual senses. Okay, So the lust of the flesh is what satisfies 
our physical appetites. Um, anything like gluttony or um, a, a, adultery or fornication, um, anything where our body is used to, uh, to be sinful or, or is misused in the way that it should have functioned. Okay? Now, the other two, the lust of the eye and the pride of life, those are more in regards to the sinfulness of the soul or the spirit. Okay? Now, what's interesting is that you'll see the lust of the flesh does not just occupy the flesh. That's why like, something like fornication is one of the greatest evils. Why? <coughs> kind of already hinted at it. So it doesn't just occupy the physical, but also the soul. The soul, right? So what has to precede the physical action is what? The mind and the, the, the desire that materializes into an action. Okay? So that's why we ought to stop our sinful inclinations from the root. That's why Christ said what about adultery? Even if you look. Exactly. Even if you look at another woman, you have already committed adultery with her. Where? In your mind. Okay? Now, when the action materializes into a physical sin, now your whole being is involved. Does that make sense? And not only that, but you stumble the person with which you sin. Okay? Any comments, questions on that? Mm. <coughs> okay. So, what's the solution? He who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God abides forever. That's that's the conclusion of. <laughs> Of the, the, the last phrase the deacon says after the Catholic. You're absolutely right. Now, break that down practically. If you are not to love the world, you said the solution is to abide in whom? In God. So, there's got to be a reciprocal action. There's got to be like an opposite action. Because... Not loving the world is not virtuous. There's no virtue in not loving the world. Okay, you're not attached to the world. That's fine. But where's the benefit there if it stops at that? Where does the benefit happen? At what point are your efforts actually beneficial? that translate into the goal when you actually do something God. about it yes, when you love God when you're, when you're <coughs> clinging from the world to cling on to Him 
Okay, so both are important, but the first is the tool to accomplish the goal. Does that make sense? Okay. St. Simeon says, Let us flee the world. For what we have got for for what have we got in common with it? Let us run and pursue something which is permanent that does not pass away until we have laid hold of it. For all things perish and pass away like a dream, and nothing is lasting or certain among the things which are seen. So to not love the world is not the goal. It is not the end, the end in and of itself. Right? So now we're fasting, right? We're in, in the fast of nativity and we're trying to discipline ourselves. We're trying to basically not love the world. We're trying to not be attached to the world. We're trying to not even be attached to food, even though that's a good thing. Why? Because we need that freedom from these ties in order to cling on to Christ. But the goal is to cling, right? The goal is to cling and to pursue Him. So, detaching is the first step. It is for our own freedom so that we can cling on to Him. And in a sense, we, we are a slave to that which we are attached to. So as St. Paul says, you're either a slave of sin or a slave of yeah. righteousness. Yeah. Same thing. So you, you have to be attached to one thing or another. Okay? We all have passions, we all have, have love. Alright. Something that uh, I found interesting... in regards to our efforts. <coughs> now, whenever we cling on to God, we, we pursue the ultimate goal, right? When, when we pursue things in the earth, what's ironic is that we miss heaven and we don't even find real joy in the earthly things. So, look at this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. That's true. Right? It's hard enough to abide in God alone whenever our efforts are fixed on Him. Now, whenever our efforts are not fixed on Him, that not only are we going to lose Him, but we won't even find any joy in the world here now. Okay? So that's what C.S. Lewis is saying here. Aim at heaven, and you'll get a little bit of earth thrown in. If you're trying to go to church, but you're still going to be distracted with things, it's not like we're going to be above the world. Right? You're still living in the world. But... Aim at earth, you're not going to even get the joys of heaven or real joy here on earth. Alright? <clears throat> so, let's now read from 18 to... Let's go to 20... Let's 
three. Okay, any any other comments first before we move on? No? Okay. Who can read first then? Thank you. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a, li who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and, and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Perfect. So just take a moment to read that again to yourself, and then we'll discuss it. What do you guys think? The end of the world, huh? <laughs> it's the end of the world. Yeah. <coughs> I think his use of Antichrist here is not just like a particular person, but it could be anything that's against Christ, regardless of what it, what it is. It's not necessarily a person, as opposed to it could be... But it could be a hobby, right? It could be yeah. anything just against God. Exactly. So, I love that distinction because a lot of times we think of like this uh, Satan in disguise type of figure that's just going to come and mislead everybody. But uh, I think we, we all um, do encounter Antichrist type figures. And uh, it may not be a specific person. Like Jack is alluding to. So it's not going to be a person, Antichrist? There will be. No. So what's interesting is that he says, very, very interesting, he says, he says Antichrist, and then he says Antichrists. Yeah. Okay? So take a look. Little children, it's the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Right? Even now, many Antichrists have come. I also noticed that <coughs> the first anti yeah, the first Antichrist is capitalized. The second right. Is not. 
So there's like a, there's a definite article there because we do know that uh, th there will be in the apocalypse the 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 moment where Satan is defeated personally along with his armies, but that's not really what concerns us now. Really, not what concerns us now. What concerns us is the present. The present is that many antichrists have come. It's interesting because he's building on what he said previously about do not love the world. So it's almost like he's saying everything that is in the world that you are attached to is what has become your opposition to Christ. That is exactly what an antichrist is. Does that make sense? So, we could take this uh, a little bit more directly um, in the sense of certain figures that have opposed the doctrines of the church. Um, in the past, the Father said that this verse makes it plain that all who are known to have withdrawn from the love and the unity of the universal church are adversaries of the Lord and Antichrist. That's what St. Cyprian says here. But I don't want to just limit it to that. It's not only those who preach um, these explicitly false doctrines. I think... Um, now... I hope you'll see where I'm going with this because it's really not a far stretch if you look at it in my perspective. I think society has almost made Christmas into an antichrist. The way the way shopping is now um, the way the holiday season is now, there is no spirit of Christ in it. It's everything about buy this and get that on sale and people trampling over people in Black Friday. Like, where is Christ in Christmas when people are dying running into Walmart and Target? I don't get it. Maybe 70%. The 70% <laughs> comes with Christmas Eve and yeah. to church and they do something, you know. Those are the ones who hold on to the real spirit, of yeah. course. And the struggle is now to preserve Christ in an anti-Christ type of society. So, I, I like turn into the Grinch more and more every year because of the things I see around Christmas. I see more hostility around Christmas and more selfishness around Christmas than any other time that I don't, I don't get it. So we need to fix that. How are we going to fix that? <coughs> you tell me. We need you to love Christmas. <laughs> I love it when I experience what it's all about. I love it when I experience the love in the family. I love it when I'm in Kiak praises. I love it when, like... I see nativities. I love it when I see people giving out of the goodness of their heart, not trampling over people to run into the store. <laughs> what 
just good enough. <clears throat> but it's so rare now. That's that's my thing. I don't want to go off on a tangent and my anti-Christmas rant. But you, my point is that um, the, the devil comes in disguise. I don't want us to think of the Antichrist as this big demon that you see described in Revelations with like, <coughs> horns and whatever. Okay. Um, sometimes it can, very, it can be a very subtle, innocent disguise. And every one of us can probably think of what it is in our own personal lives that opposes our bond to Christ. What it is that opposes our bond to Christ. It can be a, an obsessive hobby. It can be um, a, an addiction to work. It can be um, whatever. We even said family members. Okay? So we all have to kind of hone in on our own personal lives to see what it is that is separating us from Christ, which is essentially what an Antichrist is. Uh, that's the more spiritual understanding of it, although we said there will be the Antichrist is that definite article. Okay? Any comments? No. Anybody have a problem with my Grinch uh, perspective? No, we're good. Okay. We understand. <laughs> we'll fix it when we're all together as a family. Yeah, we will. Right. So what's interesting is what he follows with right after. He says, um, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. You have an anointing from the Holy One. What does that mean, you have an anointing from the Holy One? Okay, you're anointed by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Okay, what is the word anointing? The sacrament, right? Yeah. Yes, which one? The unction of the sick. That is an anointment, but when you think of anointment as the sacrament, it's chrismation itself. The word an anointed is chrism. Or chrismation, you actually get the word Christ from anointed. So Jesus Christ is Jesus the anointed, the chosen one. But Jesus is, is like Yeshua, Savior, the, the Savior who is chosen. That is what Jesus Christ literally means. The, the, the Savior who is anointed. Now, take a little bit of um, tangent to the Old Testament whenever you see this word being used, um, what's the context that you will see this being used? Anointing kings. Anointing kings. Perfect. So a king, when he is made a king, he is anointed by uh, oil, and he is now dedicated for that role. He is set apart and consecrated to be a ruler or a king. Uh, he is... He's now set apart. He, his life is committed to that role. 
Okay, does that make sense? Now translate that to to us, to our lives. When we become anointed, what does that mean? We're chosen by God. Chosen by God, set apart by God, dedicated and committed to God and nothing else. Right? Whenever you'll see in the Old Testament, Moses, when he's in, instructed to, uh, to anoint the temple or consecrate the temple, what he's really doing by consecrating is he's saying like, now, having put the oil on it, it cannot be used for anything else but the service of God. It cannot be used for anything else but for worship and to offer the sacrifice. So when I am anointed, I cannot be used for anything else. My mind cannot be directed towards anyone or anything else. My energy cannot be directed to anything else. My time cannot be directed towards anything else. And, and even when we do our tasks, our obligations, our work, all those things, they are centered in Him. So we, we go to work to, <coughs> to glorify Him as a part of our consecration to Him. So, Joe, you're a doctor, you go to work to be His anointed physician. Exactly, so you're not doing something different now that you have to go to work and you're not at church. You know, a lot of people think they got to live these segmentalized lives. I go to church and that's whenever I'm committing my time to Him. And then schoolwork, well, that's different. After school and I study and I go to my exams, then I'll go back to God. That's not the way it works. Everything that we do becomes consecrated for Him. So when I'm studying, I, I do so with an honesty that glorifies Him. I do so with a heart that is committed to succeed and glorify Him through my work. And so my studies become consecrated. My studies become a part of my Christianity, becomes a part of my life. And that applies to everything. Work, school, raising kids, a family. Now I'm not raising a kid because I'm living for the kid as if that's my goal. But I love my child in order to glorify God and to raise a saint. I love my spouse not because I'm attached to my spouse, like my, my love ends in my spouse, but through that sacrament of marriage and my love for God, I glorify Him and my marriage becomes consecrated, anointed to glorify Him. The love that I express through my marriage is the way I love Him. That's why He says, love one another. And St. Paul said, this is the one way to fulfill the commandment. Okay? So, in that sense, we become anointed. St. Severus says, all have been anointed. Not only the prophets and holy men who lived in their days, but also, and especially, 
all those who later believed in the great and only true anointed one who is Christ, our God and Savior, along with those who continue to believe with him, in him. Okay? So now take this personally. So it's not just the kings who have been anointed, but we all have been baptized and chrismated. In baptism, we have been put to death and raised to life. The old man died, and now the new man is born again. What do we do with this new man as soon as he's born? Right away, chrismation. Consecrate him as life is dedicated to God. That's why chrismation happens right after baptism. Then, after chrismation, now he needs to live by the Eucharist. So straight from chrismation to the body and blood of Christ. And that's, just, that's the ultimate goal, is to unite with him. Now that he's been consecrated to God, he now has access to unite with Christ and, and have fellowship with the Father. Any comments? Okay, so let's uh, move on. We still have a couple minutes, so we'll just try to... <coughs> cover the next couple of verses. How about we go from verse 24 to 27. Therefore, let, it, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And that is the promise that He promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not, is not a lie. And just as I have taught you, you will abide in Him. Okay. Good. Take a moment to just read that again, and then we'll discuss it very quickly. <coughs> Alright, what do you think? <clears throat> if you abide in Christ, if you abide in the Father, and in doing so, you gain eternal life. Very good. So, our access to the Father is through Christ. <clears throat> And Christ himself says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So it is 
through the revelation that Christ gives us that we need to follow. So, it's like a dynamic relationship. It's beautiful because once we know who Christ is, we come to understand, at least to, to the extent that He reveals us, reveals to us, the love of the Father. Okay? He says, I write these things to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So, this, again, just keeps repeating a little. In, in the beginning of our Bible study today, we talked about <coughs> the deception that is in the world, how the world, its lusts, can deceive us. And then we, he mentions the Antichrist, and he says, even now, some Antichrists are among you. Then he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So, he, he says this right after what Jack mentioned about knowing Christ and having access to the Father. Because if we do not know who Christ is, we are easily deceived by false doctrines. That's why theology is so important. And having the correct theology translates to the correct practice. If I know who He is and the the depth of the Incarnation and what His love really meant for me and what His words really teach me in the Scriptures, it will translate into the right orthodox practice. If I have false or faulty theology, then I can be misled. Okay? And, and it's not just a like blatant or, or an explicit heresy that you might come across. I don't think somebody's going to come and tell us who... You know, Jesus is not really God because the Bible says here that the Father is greater than I, and so that means He's not God. I think we pretty much understand those big concepts, like the divinity of Christ. What does make us stumble is the... the, the the finer points of theology. What makes us stumble is, is how we apply our theology. So when we look at God's love, for example, and we try to live by the same love that He loved us with, um, other people may preach a doctrine that opposes that. Other people might come and say, well, the world... Um, has a lot of good and bad, and so we should live to be balanced. And uh, there should be moderation. You really shouldn't love um, unconditionally. You have to stand up for yourself, you know. Um, Why would you have, like, a humility where everybody steps on you? Right? And they compromise our wisdom, because obviously we carry out our, our life based on the wisdom that God gives us. 
And so, what that wisdom is built on is our understanding of who God is and what God has taught us. What our understanding of true love. What our understanding is of humility. And so when the world comes to redefine it, or misdefine it, we could easily stumble upon that. And then that's what will take us off course. Like you're at work and somebody says, you know, um, the only way to, to come up in um, th- this department is you got to like step over people and do this and that. And, you know, the world is kind of cutthroat. So you got to just compromise the, your own values. But if you really know who Christ is, that Christ never compromised his honesty, that Christ never cut corners, that Christ was always loving unreservedly, it will translate into the same practice. And you'll never compromise your honesty at work. You'll never cheat on your homework or your exam. Um, You'll never fail to forgive the one who offends you even though it's a repetitive offense. Why? Because you know who God is and God is love. God forgives. He says, I, even I, he who forgives your sins and your iniquities, I will no longer remember. So if you know that about God and you apply that to yourself, you forgive and you forget. <coughs> the world tells you, for, what do you mean forgive and forget? You know, take your rights, right? Okay. Just a final thought here, just because I don't want to come back to this passage <coughs> next week. Something interesting that that St. John points out is the relationship between the apostolic teachings and the truth we receive that is handed down to us from the church and that we, the, the truth that we receive from God Himself. Okay, so check out how he links both of these. So he says, um, this is the, just straight out of the Orthodox Study Bible Commentary. It says, for John, apostolic teaching and writing, which is mentioned in verse 24 to 26, is identical with being taught of God, which is what we see in verse 27. So in verse 24 and 26, he says that you will receive the teachings from the apostles. It says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, acknowledges the Son, has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. You know, this is what we have taught you from the beginning. Okay? And then in verse 27, he says, But the, the, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. So it's a different point. So before he says, The teachings which you have received from us from the beginning, here he says, If you have been anointed by him, you have received the teachings from God and you do not need anyone else to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. So without both the work of the Spirit and apostolic doctrine, we would remain in darkness. Because He basically amounts the apostolic teachings and what God gives us 
to be one and the same. Because it is God Himself who works through His Spirit to <coughs> hand down to us what the Apostles have taught us. So He really makes no distinction between the two. This is very, very interesting. He says, you know, hold on to what we have taught you from the beginning. And then later he says, if you've been anointed, you don't need anyone to teach you. Because in essence, they amount to the same thing. Alright, any comments, questions? Anything you guys want to add? A question. You said from what God has given us, are you referring to like the Holy Spirit Himself? Yeah, exactly. So when He's always referring to the anointing or anything sacramental, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, in a nutshell, there's always more to it, but anything sacramental, even when you look at the Eucharist itself, we're receiving the body and the blood of Christ, but it is through the descent of the Spirit that we see the bread and the wine transform into the body and the blood of Christ, and we become transformed through that sacrament. Um, this is exactly what the priest prays. Um, he says that the Holy Spirit, that He may descend upon us and upon these gifts, that they may be transformed. And that applies to chrismation, because um, before it was the bishop who would lay his hand on... The, the converts to receive the Holy Spirit. But after Christianity started to spread and uh, this uh, sacrament was harder to, to perform, um, they would basically do the same thing but through the, the oil that was consecrated by the bishops. So the bishops would, would consecrate the oil through their laying of the hands and through their prayers. And the priest would not come and take that oil, which is a vessel or tool for the work of the Holy Spirit to come and to accomplish that sacrament. Alright, so we covered a very big chunk today. So, uh, I'm glad we made some progress. We'll pick up with verse um, 28 next week, but as always, just take a couple of minutes now. To, uh, to reflect on everything that we discussed, to reflect on um, whatever attachments we have to the world and um, whatever false doctrines we are um, fighting against throughout this time especially in the holiday season and things that we come across with at work or school or whatever and um, see how we can just apply that person.
why you always focus on the little children. And before it was like little children, young men, and Because he's, uh, he's a fatherly he figure. He's bringing all the people he's speaking to under his wing. He's like a shepherd. He's like... Yeah, he, he speaks as a father. He doesn't want to speak as uh, an evangelist or like a prophet or someone. You know, he wants to relate to his his audience and speak to them with the, the love of a father. It seems like talks to people like new in faith or no 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 yes. he says he says in verse um in verse twenty one he says I have not written to you because you do not know the truth but because you know it The Athena, amen, you know the truth. Okay. Yeah, he's he's it's not, not giving like, them a new message. He says you already know it. It's not just a new in face, what I mean also is like weak, still weak, yeah. not strong. Yeah, he's trying to strengthen them. Yeah, not like uh, young men or the father. Yeah, but they, the already, but, the already, but they already know the doctrine. They already believe in Christ. It's different than writing to the Jews. <coughs> 